The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning. Let's start off praying together. Father, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And so I pray, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to follow you. This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, Some authors in the Bible are really helpful They'll let you know what their stated purpose is for the book that they're writing. Luke is one of these. In his gospel, he starts at the very beginning and says that he intends to give an orderly account of the things that happened pertaining to Jesus Christ and the apostles. And that's helpful. So if you want a historical, chronological, orderly account, you would obviously go to the gospel of Luke. And John does the same in his gospel, but because John often does things a little upside down, he states his purpose at the very end. It's like walking through the grocery store. You have to get to the milk by going through everything else. And he does the same thing here in his little epistle that we've been studying for the last month, the epistle of 1 John. He says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's this stated goal. Did you hear it? That you might know that you have eternal life. And that kind of knowing is a little bit different than what we normally think about in terms of knowing. It's, it's not knowing in terms of uh, intellectual assent or even seceding to the facts about something. It's a knowing that inspires confidence and assurance, a knowing that maybe is a little more akin to something like trusting, where there's confidence born from it. Um, A couple of years ago, I did an alpine swing in Colorado on a trip with my family. Anybody familiar with alpine swings? It's what it sounds like. You swing into the abyss. You've get into a harness, and you end up swinging over the edge of the, the canyon. And how you're looking at me right now is how my wife was looking at me whenever I said I wanted to do this too. She's always asked me to please wait until the kids are 18 to do things like this, and I disregarded it and did it anyways. I harnessed myself in. And you know what? It was absolutely terrifying. The wildest part of this swing Um, And I got my daughter to do it too, by the way. But the wildest part about this swing uh, is that as it's slowly cranking up, you know, for effect, of course, um, you yourself have to pull the cord so that you go flying out over the abyss. No one else is excited by that? (laughs) It's terrifying. But I knew, I knew it would be worth it. What was the source of my confidence? 
Was it my knowledge of the machine itself and how alpine swings work? Absolutely not. Was it my knowledge of the 19-year-old who had been deputized and given permission to run this thing? (laughs) Never had a mortgage, and I'm entrusting my life to him. Absolutely not. My confidence relied solely in the harness. I knew it, but more than that, it knew me. It had a hold of me. And so in a normally terrifying situation, I actually wasn't really afraid at all. It was incredible. I encourage it to all of you. And also listen to your wives if they tell you to wait until your kids are 18. That's another lesson I learned from that. Okay, John wants to inspire that kind of confidence here. He wants his readers to know they have eternal life, to have confidence in relationship to God, for their hearts to be at rest in his presence, for them to have assurance that they're partakers of his very life. That they not only know him, but they're known by him. And so our passage today is actually bookended with this same kind of knowing language. Verse 19 begins with, by this we know that we are of the truth. And verse 24 ends with, by this we know that he lives in us. So John's presenting to us not only these realities, but there's a very real obstacle to such confidence with God. And it's one we know very well. But in concert with that, he's also going to offer a resolution, a path into a life-grabbing assurance with God. And so this morning, first, a problem, and second, a path. Uh, the, The readers of this letter were believers, but they were under cultural, philosophical, and theological attack from voices. Okay, the epistle calls them liars and sometimes even calls them antichrists. They're denying the fundamental and objective realities of the Christian life. They were fine with subjective spirituality, is is true in our present day, that they would champion the individual experience of someone experiencing something transcendent or someone experiencing something divine, but they were separating and leaving and tempting John's readers to separate and leave from the realities that are foundational to the Christian faith, namely in his epistle, that, that Jesus is the son of God who had come in the flesh. And as Tim explained last week, that those who belong to Jesus find his life born in them and see his life born through them in acts of obedience and in acts of love. And so John repeats these three themes over and over and over again, almost annoyingly so, faith in Christ, obedience, and love, faith in Christ, obedience, and love. And why does he do this? He's actually intending these things to be sources of confidence for them as hallmarks of assurance that they truly believe and they truly obey and they truly love Christ, that they might know they have God's life in them. But for many, and perhaps some of us too, these three themes actually inspire quite the opposite. Faith. We often have a faltering faith, and we too are tempted to separate, to turn our back on the faith once handed down, particularly as it pertains to Jesus Christ, to soften him a bit, that he can't truly be the only way. He's just one of many different ways. Obedience, our obedience is often intermittent. It comes and it goes. I only need to ask your neighbor or your friend if that's so, and they would testify to that reality. And then love, our love is often self-serving, isn't it? 
We love those who love us back. We give love to those from whom we expect to receive it in return. It's not really self-sacrificial and it's not really self-forgetful. And so if we're honest with ourselves, if we're relying solely on, on the faithfulness in our lives in these arenas as the basis for our confidence, we're going to find ourselves unconvinced and lacking, won't we? Soon, guilt starts to set in, not confidence. Our hearts start to become restless when we think of God, not reassured. And if that restlessness remains unresolved over time, it presents a real problem. The reality and the presence of God becomes to us like walking into a room full of accusation. It's clouded with judgment. It's a place of condemnation. Verse 19 and 20, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, the experience of condemnation is inevitable. It's not a matter of if our hearts condemn us, but whenever our hearts condemn us. John is appealing here to a common human experience. The human heart naturally feels restless or timid or uncertain or unsettled when it comes to God. There's an internal human reality that something's not quite right. And the voice of condemnation carries with it not just a voice of judgment, it's also a voice of disapproval. Not just that we do something wrong, but that we are something wrong. This makes us feel exposed and ashamed, and especially if we think of God. This is clearly displayed in our Old Testament reading from Genesis 3. Man and woman were originally intended to be naked and unashamed in the presence of God and with one another. Naked and unashamed. In some ways, that seems a strange thing to us until you have a child. What an experience that is. There's, there's so much exposure in that room. And it's not just among family. It's also among strangers. Completely naked, completely unashamed. In some ways, it's like an R-rated mess. And at the same time, it's so holy. There's no judgment in that room. There's no condemnation. Just exposed and unashamed in each other's presence. And that's not the reality we face in our humanity when it comes to God. It's quite different. Romans 5.18 is a commentary on Genesis 3. And Paul says this, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And so there's a universal problem. Sin gave way for condemnation to reign in the heart of man and woman, which fundamentally not only changed the way that Adam and Eve relate to each other, but it produced an overwhelming amount of guilt in the presence of God. Adam and Eve's confidence died when it comes to God. And so they hid. Why wouldn't they? I would tell you that perhaps is the primary marker of someone suffering condemnation, even if they don't know it. They hide. They hide from God. They hide from others. They even try to hide from the voice of the judge that exists 
in their own hearts. In all instances, living life in the presence of God becomes almost an impossible reality because of the overwhelming weight of that. That's why John says here in verse 20, it is our own hearts that tend to condemn us. And then like Adam and Eve, those suffering, they find a hundred insufficient fig leaf-like cloaks to try and cover themselves. Different means of minimization or denial or rationalization. Some choose irreligion to try and find reprieve, to try and silence the voice, thinking if they can just forget God altogether, that'll make it go away. And some take the other route. They choose hyper-religion, morality, and obedience, hoping that some semblance of goodness that they produce will quiet the voice in their lives, and neither works. Not in the long term. It's insufficient. Hiding never works. So it begs the question, is there a way to reassure our hearts before God and others? Is there a path back to naked confidence in the presence of God? And the answer is yes, but God's going to have to do it. He's going to have to provide the way. And there is a path. Verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And so there it is. It's the beginning of the path that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And so the primary grounds of our confidence and assurance originates with him. What we first need to know is that the harness has hold of us, that God is for us. He's not against us. Our hearts have to be persuaded by his greater voice. Our assurance has to come from his knowledge of us. The path to freedom does not start from within yourself. Modern psychology uh, often prescribes self-forgiveness as the primary antidote to condemnation in a person's life. And while I would say self-forgiveness is incredibly important, it is not the first step. The first step starts from outside and comes in. That's where freedom ultimately begins. God is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. What you feel or think must be brought into submission to what he says and what he does. So what does he say and what does he do? Where are you? That's God's first response to Adam's failure in Genesis 3. Where are you? It's not a question of ignorance, like God doesn't know everything and can't locate Adam. It's a question of pursuit. Even in his condemned and hiding state, Adam finds himself pursued and exposed by God himself. God knows everything, Adam. God's larger than your heart. And what does God do? After their exchange, does he condemn them? Verse 21 in chapter three. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He covers them with animal skins. He provides a path out of condemnation by means of a sacrifice. Something dies to cover their nakedness to do for them what their fig leaves couldn't achieve. 
And throughout scripture, we see this idea developed further, this path revealed that God will remedy the condemnation born from sin by means of a sacrifice that he's going to provide. It's picked up in the New Testament by John, but also by Paul. Listen closely. This is a very familiar verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then Paul says, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus was not sent into the world to condemn a world that already stood condemned. He's the path out. He's the liberating force. His sacrifice, the means by which our nakedness and our shame is covered to save us from condemnation, not to condemnation. He's the objective and greater way to calm the voice that resides in our hearts. He absorbs the loss. He silences the voice. He makes a new path. I uh, I recently reacquainted myself with Les Mis. There was a time in my life when I ventured to read Hugo's work. It's about 1,500 pages long. I did finish it because I'm an Enneagram 8 and I can't not finish it. However, I never ventured to do 1,500 pages again. Instead, I've gone the lazy route of Netflix to watch the movie that was made, the musical with Hugh Jackman. Anybody seen it? I've watched it twice recently. It's a, it's a great story. It's moving. It's a story of condemnation and the path towards freedom. Javert is the guard and the inspector who represents condemnation, and he won't seem to let Valjean off the hook, will he? As a matter of fact, one difference between the book and the movie, the book only mentions Valjean's prisoner number twice in its 1,500 pages. If you've seen the movie, you know, they almost don't even, he doesn't even use Valjean's name. He keeps calling him prisoner, let's see, what's the number? 24601, over and over again. He's dehumanized. He's so bad, he doesn't even deserve to have his name said. And so condemnation follows him around. But my favorite character in the book is actually at the beginning, and he's the catalyst for Valjean to be free. It's Bishop Muriel. You remember him? The very beginning of the story. Valjean serves his 19 years. He has nowhere to go. He's set free, but he's not really free. He has a certificate that he must present everywhere he goes, and so no one will take him in. And no one will give him work until he stumbles upon the parish of Bishop Muriel. He's welcomed in. He's provided wine and food and a warm fire. He's provided a bed to sleep on. And Valjean doesn't utter a word. But he notices while he's there that there's gold and silver trinkets everywhere. And in the middle of the night, Valjean loads up much of those things. And he tries to steal and run away in the middle of the night, but he's caught. And what happens? He's brought back guilty. 
the very crime for which he served 19 years, he just committed. And it's fascinating what happens. He comes in and the guards say that we found this man with your things. And the bishop looks at them, looks at him, and he says, I gave those to him as a gift. As a matter of fact, Valjean, you forgot the two candlesticks on the table where we dined. And he takes the silver candlesticks and puts them in the bag and gives the bag to Valjean. He's baffled. He stood condemned. What he received was someone who absorbed the cost. What he received was an act of self-sacrificial love. What he received was a different voice. And before Valjean leaves into the night, Bishop Muriel says this to him. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I buy from you. I withdraw it back from black thoughts in the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And the rest of the story is an unfolding of this new path playing out in his life. A man once condemned set free, and the bishop silenced it, but he did more than that. He replaced the voice. And in closing, John reminds us something of the same here, that God does more than simply silence the voice of condemnation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He replaces it with something new. The last line in our passage says, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The the assurance of God's presence within us by the spirit. Now this is the one Jesus called the helper in our gospel reading. In Greek, it's the word paraclete. And in some translations, choose the word advocate instead of helper because it's the same word that's used of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2, that he testifies in our behalf and he advocates for us before God the Father. He's our sure defense. And Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is our advocate too, but he's the advocate in the courtroom of our hearts. That when the condemning voice creeps back in, he reminds us that we share in the very life of God and begins to produce in us a life that's full and that's free. That's what verse 22 and following shows us. The very things John keeps repeating that once inflamed condemnation, he now mentions become means of assurance We have a refreshed faith in Christ, the Son of God. We have a renewed obedience. We do what pleases him. We keep his commandments. And we display sacrificial love for one another. John even mentions here that our prayer life becomes marked by a newfound confidence. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And that we receive what we asked of him. We know Condemnation gives way to confidence. Restlessness turns into reassurance. And if ever that old accusing voice creeps in, the spirit of God in us rises. And that new and better voice provides a sure defense. We can be reassured in our hearts that we belong to him. God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. In the name of God, the father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for blessed assurance for all who are here this morning that they might find themselves known by you and have faith in Christ to enjoy the blessed reality that there truly is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen.